Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello everyone, it is 6 o'clock in the evening, I should probably clarify that, I'm not a psychopath waking up at 6am on a Thursday, just to record a podcast, I did that, I woke up earlier than that to go to work, but it is 6 o'clock p.m. Thursday evening, October 1st, 2020, we made it, we made it to Halloween month. Sorry for those of you who get excited about Christmas and Thanksgiving. Wait your turn. But it is, it, it's time for this week's rendition of the Homeward Path. This, it, it's what I love to do. So, I got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Obviously so, I guess, since you're here, right? Is there something in your everyday life that takes precedence over magic? A partner? children, grueling job or careers. There's obviously a discernible difference between those two things. Despite all of this, are you still trying to improve at magic? Well, if you answered yes to any of those questions, then stick around because I'm going to announce an announcement in a minute. And that announcement is that this week we're going to look at the three B's of improvement, budgeting, brewing, and breaking bad habits. Once we get the corporate shilling out of the way, it's our time to remind you that we are sponsored by Pure MTGO. Pure MTGO is one of the largest repositories of magic content on the web, and if you haven't yet, you should check them out. I mean, if you're listening to me there, you've already done that. But while you're perusing the web, don't forget to check out the parent network at constructedcriticism.com. I mean, I... I've been on the record for years talking about how good the content on that network is, and you should probably just take my word for it and go check it out. And last but not least, if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, you can head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. This show is always going to be free, but if you would like to gain access to our Discord, get your deck published in our Brew of the Week segment, and or get an episode of your very own covering a topic that you want. Those are the rewards currently for the Patreon tiers. So if those are things that interest you, you should probably head on over there. With that out of the way, let's go into our first segment every week. We're doing Budget Spotlight. Budget Spotlight, where we highlight an uncommon, a rare, and a mythic. Most weeks, sometimes there's more, sometimes we don't have a mythic. I like to try to keep this on theme with the episode. So, the first card, or cards, rather, that I want to talk about are the Cauldron Familiar Witches Oven Package. As it pertains to Historic, Pioneer, and Standard. Not Standard. Historic and Pioneer. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's been a long day. 
So we all remember how much of a boogie man or cat or whatever you want to call it. We remember how much of a nuisance this thing was in standard. Which is why I had standard on the brain, I guess. It was just the kind of card that did a lot of damage to a lot of different archetypes. The best thing I can the, the best thing I can quote it with is the the notes that I made. It's a compact, efficient engine that helps supercharge aristocrat strategies that's unbelievably true. It's the card that propped up Mayhem Devil through like you know it, I guess technically it's whole run in standard because it mayhem devil only came out in May before familiar and oven released in October but it it supercharges aristocrat strategies you get all the payoffs for both sacrifice triggers and death triggers it can be used in food strategies. It's just a really neat, compact engine that does a lot of good. It's also incidental aggro hate, kind of carrying over some of the theme from last week. Excuse me. One of the best ways to beat up on aggro decks is to make it difficult for them to get in meaningful attacks with big, non-evasive creatures. You know, Lovestruck Beast is real impressive until it gets stonewalled by this stupid cat that keeps coming back from the graveyard. It can also slot into a number of different decks. And this is this was more true of it during Standard, but it's also true of it in Historic and Bionier. You can play it in the Jun Citadel deck in order to kind of help ratchet up the number of different ways that deck can kill you seemingly out of nowhere I mean it definitely helps there it can be played in green black grindy strategies as a way to kind of stonewall the fast aggro decks it can be played in I mean just just a, I guess aristocrat strategies as a whole like it's great there black white green black red black any combination of those colors together, black, white, it's just very, very good at doing what it does. And speaking of things that are unbelievable at what they do, let's move to our rare. The rare is Fires of Invention. Uh, to clarify, for Cat and Oven, the total price of both cards put together is $1.50. Do a lot worse than $1.50 for an engine that invalidates aggro decks and supercharges your aristocrats theme and makes your opponent's life just generally miserable, which is technically another win condition where they get tired of watching you loop it turn after turn after turn and just decide that the hours of their life are more valuable than watching you repeatedly do horrible things to this poor cat. But a rare is Fires of Invention, which is somehow 75 cents. Now, to clarify, Fires of Invention is not only banned in Standard, it is also banned in Historic. But, Fires of Invention enables an unreal number of different archetypes, beginning with the varieties from its run in Standard. 
those being the 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 what we called the ponies deck, where you just played like a bunch of Cavaliers and Kenrith with Fires of Invention and like generic control cards. There's the Super Friends version that plays just a ton of Planeswalkers, which makes your Narset Parter avails infinitely more valuable. You get the Wish Board with Fey of Wishes that's very powerful in conjunction with Fires because you can play wildly off-color cards in your Fey of Wishes sideboard, and it's more powerful in a, in a deck that's not playing very many creatures to begin with. You can play a bunch of different Planeswalkers from outside your color identity in your Wish Board, which is really cool. It slots into the the terror that was Jeskai Luka, which is still a deck you can play in Pioneer, folks. Winota gets all the press, but Luka would probably be the more oppressive of the two if optimized for the Pioneer form. Uh, because Winota needs specific types of non-human creatures attacking. Luca just needs creature tokens. And you can get back to doing unspeakable things to your opponent with their own things. I guess they're not unspeakable if you're killing them with their stuff. But you've also got more powerful stuff along those lines. It can also be incredible in Commander thanks to ramp, utility lands, and activated abilities. I mean, Fires of Invention, you're, you're restricted to two spells per turn. You can only cast spells on your turn, but they're free as long as their cost is less than, the, less than or equal to the number of lands you control. Well, if you're playing a green, red, whatever deck, or you're just playing a bunch of stuff like Journeyer's Kites and uh, Wayfarer's Bobbles and Burnished Hearts and Solemn Simulacrums, you can still get plenty of extra lands into play. You can make your fires more valuable. And because of the myriad of utility lands available, and the capacity to activate abilities on your opponent's turns, even if you're not taking advantage of the uh, the ability of fires to cast spells on their turns, which obviously you can't do. Even though you're not casting spells, you can be activating abilities, which is like almost as good. And then it allows Planeswalker-centric decks specifically, both in Pioneer, Commander, both those formats. It allows those decks to flourish specifically because one of the biggest knocks on Super Friends decks historically is that you're, you're, you're tapping out for a thing, and if you're impacting the board with it right away, you tend to have a very soft Planeswalker leftover afterward. Imagine if during its run in standard, Callblade could have played Jace the Mind Sculptor and Gideon Jura immediately on turn five. I guess sometimes they could because they had the Sword of Feast and Famine, and that's what made them so gross. But imagine if they had another way to do that. 
That's kind of bananas. It's kind of bonkers. Right? Imagine if the green-white tokens deck could have splashed and been able to cast, you know, Gideon and Nyssa on turn four. Or, you know, Nyssa on turn three, fires Gideon on turn four, and then been like... I don't know. I didn't play that deck much. I guess you could have played, like, Collected Company. Like, there's, there's so much nonsense that the card just enables because it allows you to double up on your mana. And it changes the way decks are built. It changes what spells are good. Like, it's just a cool card. And you can do a lot worse than a really cool card that's got a high build-around ceiling for 75 cents. And that brings us to our Mythic this week. And our Mythic is a little bit above our normal price tag in this slot. But it's one that I feel like kind of gets a bad rap for being the namesake of the deck that the fires enable. And that card is Luca Copper Coat Outcast. This card is in standard currently. And it is $5. $5. It's the centerpiece of quote-unquote polymorph decks. Able to do the job multiple times. You can cast it, get it right away, and leave a Planeswalker behind. It's that classic, like, mid-range value mindset. By contrast, the plus one and minus seven abilities favor a creature-centric deck, where the minus three wants you to play, like, a polymorph deck so you can just flip the most broken thing you can think of into play. The, minus, the plus one and minus seven want you to be playing a lot of creatures. So, like, to get value out of your Luka over a long game, you really want to be ticking that thing up and doing so meaningfully, but obviously that's at odds with the minus, I think, the minus three. It's a, it's a sweet card, though. Like, I love me some Polymorph. I have played many a bad Polymorph variant. Do not question I have played Madcap Experiment in the sideboard of Blue Red Prowess. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I, I, I know what I like. <laughs> it also adds a level of redundancy and consistency alongside cards like Polymorph, Transmorgify, you know, decks that are built around this kind of effect. It's another redundancy piece for those kinds of decks in Commander where you would otherwise only get one copy of each of those effects. And Blue-Red Polymorph is a cool archetype in Commander. It's not, like, terrifying because we don't have Emrakul the Aeon Storm. But it is very, very, very good. Very good. It also plays well, the plus one also plays well in more creature-centric decks that are playing cards like Vizier of the Menagerie, where if you f you hit a creature you can't cast with Vizier right away, you can exile it away and Luke will be able to cast it later, and you can potentially keep going. Or if you hit, you hit a land and you've still got mana available, you can Luka the land away and potentially get another hit off the Vizier. Like it's just a really cool card. And then, obviously, the ultimate is the ultimate. But that brings us to this week's Brew of the Week, which is, if you hadn't already guessed, Luca Fires and Pioneer. 
there are two words that come to mind when I think about this deck. The first is powerful. This deck was bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S in standard. Just thoroughly disgusting. Turns out, putting Agent of Treachery into play a turn, guaranteeing that you can hit Agent of Treachery by turn five, pretty good. Doing it in a shell where you can then turn around and blink everybody, get another trigger from Agent, and get your Planeswalker back at full loyalty, plus potentially get more tokens and or cards out of it. Come on. That's not fair. I shouldn't be allowed to do that. It leverages threats we never hope to hardcast and does so perilously early. Failing that, you can play a tap-out control plan that buys time or grinds them into the dust. And in particular, because you are a polymorph deck, a card like Narset Parter of Veils gets infinitely more powerful. Narset being able to find all your combo pieces while making sure you don't draw your Agent of Treachery or whatever big dumb thing you're going to fluke. It also for the purposes of today's episode, plays the highest concentration of recently banned and standard cards, depending on the build. If you're playing the the sort of generic stock Jeskai list, you've got some you've got some ringers. Agent of Treachery, Teferi Time Raveler, uh, Fires of Invention. Um, oh, there's another one. And I'm the your Yorian is a companion. I know there's more. If you're playing a teamer version, you've got fires, you've got agent of treachery, you've got growth spiral, you've got like, there's so many ways that this deck gets to play a lot of cards that were just too powerful to exist in standard. And that brings me to the second word that comes to mind when I talk about this deck, and that is versatile. Yorian plus stuff to blink is a pretty wide open something. That, that, that's not like dictating what your deck does in the absence of your stupid busted stuff. Because you can be blinking a lot of different things. For example... Mardu or Grixis combination, uh, Mardu or Grixis color combination. Mardu can leverage Orion because you gain access to white. You still have fires. You can still play Agent because you can try to discard it or shuffle it away. Ideally, you would want to do Grixis just because sometimes you draw the Agent and it's unfortunate. But. You can supplement your core engines of Luca plus Token Makers plus Yorian plus Agent of Treachery with another combo that will frustrate the ever-loving word I can't say on air out of opponents with Harmless Pact or uh, Harmless Offering and Demonic Pact, where Demonic Pact will grind them out a little bit more, make them discard cards, kill something, gain life 
Yorian can blink it, which is really good. I mean, you can do a lot worse on turn four than fires plus demonic pact. If the board states fairly clear, like, and then you can just turn around and draw to your Luca and play Luca, blow up a token, go get, you know, just, just do all the thing, do all the things that that does. But you also gain access to getting demonic pack ticked down until it's the not beneficial effects to you. And then you have harmless offering and just give it to them right before it's going to make you lose the game. You make them lose the game instead. It's like tricks, but not for kids. You can also build the traditional Jeskai variant, which still has a lot of different flex slots, cards like Birth of Miletus. You can play more token generators as you go down into Pioneer. You can play, um, like, Supreme Verdict is a really good card to have access to. Adding Shadows over Innistrad to any of these decks, or not Shadows, Shadows over Innistrad, or specifically Eldritch Moon to any of these gives you access to Emrakul the Promised End as a thing you can just plop a 13-13 with pro instance into play. Seems decent. Or you can do Tamer so that you can accelerate into Fire's Luka on the same turn, potentially, via Growth Spiral and or Cultivate. And those enable you to play like the ramp sub theme where you just play a bunch of lands really fast and jam an Ugin down their throat. And it allows you to more reliably hard cast your agents, which is probably something we're interested in here, right? But we do all of that to talk about our primary topic this week. We've had a lot of cards banned in the last two years. Like a lot of cards banned. An unreasonable amount of cards banned in the last two years. So I thought it would be useful to take a look at the history of bans in Standard. And I'm specifically talking about Standard, not Eternal Formats, because those are a whole different ball of wax. And that is going to have to be its own episode. Sorry. Not sorry. We got a band together. See what I did there? So... For this, we have a brief history of bannings in Standard. From my time. That's not going to include stuff like Memory Jar or Academy or... I guess that was basically it before my time. So I started playing in the fall of 2004. We had Champions of Kamigawa. Mirrodin was still in Standard. So Mirrodin was a set that was available for me to get cards from. It was a block that was available for me to get cards from. And I came in after the damage had been done. But I did get the I did get to play against him. Because my friend Matt had a had a tendency, like when somebody wanted to complain about how broken a deck was in the in the stuff we were playing, he would just bust out affinity and destroy you so you could see what a broken deck felt like. I promise we were good friends to each other. We were we were very good friends to each other. But 
2004 Affinity is an example of Watsi pushing a mechanic too far. When you put the artifact subtype on lands and then have cost reduction effects in the block that reduce the cost of your spells by the number of artifacts you control, you're double dipping and it's not even close to fair. Sorry. To say nothing of the just horrific thing that resulted from Skullclamp existing. It was definitely a card that just never should have made it to print. Especially not at one mana to cast, one mana to equip. But it was the first set with equipments. Like, they were trying to create a good equipment, and they were trying to create a good artifact-centric mechanic and affinity, and both of those things just ended up being way too powerful together. And Affinity took, I think, three rounds of bannings to finally kill in standard. And then there was there was much rejoicing, and there was a long period of not necessarily great standard formats, but playable standard formats. From 2005, which was the first one I played extensively, all the way through 2011, Scars of Mirrodin, ironically enough, Scars still being felt today, but it wasn't Mirrodin cards that got the axe or the hammer. It was Zendikar cards. Huh. History just keeps on repeating itself. We completely... Anyway. The deck in question was Callblade, one of the most widely... One of the most widely lauded standard decks of all time. It was, in essence, a blue-white tap-out control deck that could leverage Stoneforge Mystic and Squadron Hawk and a limited equipment package, notably like Sword of Feast and Famine, sometimes either Sword of Body and Mind, Sword of War and Peace, and then... uh, it would leverage those, and it would leverage, like, Silvok Life Staff and aggro matchups. Mortar Pod, you know. There were a lot, of, a lot of options available to it, especially as we got more cards with Living Weapon. It was just really powerful. The ability to go, like, Stoneforge tutoring up a creature was really good. Batter Skull was obviously kind of what pushed it over the top. And the end result was they decided to ban Jace the Mind Sculptor and Stoneforge Mystic in standard from late July, early August until they would have rotated out in October. That sounds oddly familiar. Considering we just did that with, like, all the decks we were tired of playing. So I have on my notes here, I have the Callblade banning was kind of the first sign of things to come, and we just didn't know it at the time. The next round didn't happen until 2017, and they started coming in waves. Kaladesh was a weird standard format because the color pie was unbalanced as words I can't say. It was wildly unbalanced. 
a good red deck was nowhere to be found. Like there, the the green black decks had better control finishers than the control decks did. It was just crazy how weird these decks really were. A little depressing, if I'm being perfectly honest. But a handful of balance issues were what they decided to ban the first time around. Those things were Emrakul the Promised End, which was a finisher so powerful that you just could not play a control deck. We tried. We really did. You had Smuggler's Copter, which was a card that was just so infinitely splashable that there was no reason not to play it. And we had Reflector Mage, which basically invalidated the aggro decks that did exist other than the one it was played in. Now, mind you, these cards were banned from Standard, but we had just gotten done with Tarkir Block with Treasure Cruise, Dig Through Time, and Fetchlands in Standard together. And they're just like, yep, okay, sometimes people die on turn three. This is fine. But this was a step too far. And in large part, I think it was just because there was, like, everything outside of these handful of mid-range archetypes was just unplayable. That was the sad fact of the matter. Everything outside of a handful of mid-range archetypes was just stone-cold unplayable. You can tell me all you want that Mardu Vehicles was aggro. And, I mean, early on it may have been. But by the time the next round rolled out, it definitely wasn't anymore. Wave 2, one card, and an, an admission by Wizard of the Coast. Oops, we accidentally made an infinite combo. It's probably too good for standard, and it warps everything around it when it exists, so we should probably get rid of it. Felidor Guardian got banned, although not before they said, well, we're going to give it a minute to see if we can uh, if we can figure it out, and the entire internet exploded, and they said, okay, fine, we'll ban it. 2017 Wave 3. Turns out spending uh, spending four mana for Ulamog is too good in this format, turns out. Uh, Aetherworks Marvel got the axe. Casting spells from the top of your library for free. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. I mean, who knew, right? Whoever could have guessed. Uh, but we we moved on. We survived, right? We made it. And then 2018, fall of 2018, is I technically it was the early winter of 2018. It says wow, we didn't print enough good stuff in Exelon. To unseat energy. It's not like broken per se. It's just a little bit better than everything else. Also, we need to get rid of this like red aggro thing we printed. 
specifically to deal with the, the, the cat combo that is actually just too good. And we need to take away the red deck's ability to grind out games where it gets you to six and kills you by activating a land. So they banned a tune with Aether, Rogue Refiner, Rampaging for Rossadon, and Ramen Up Ruins. And there were no more bans after those. From winter, it was like, what? January, it was either December 2017 or January 2018, I cannot remember. Through the late fall of 2019. And I'm just lumping these together because they should have happened at the same time, even though they didn't. And that was Field of the Dead, Oko, Once Upon a Time, and Veil of Summer. All of those cards were too good for standard. Just all of them. One mana cryptic command's really strong. Oko should never have seen print as it was. Field of the Dead gives inevitability to decks that really don't deserve it based on how they're constructed. And Once Upon a Time is just too easy to play. It's the kind of card that like, we want more of in Magic in the sense that we want games to be more consistently games. You, want, you don't want a large number of non-games, non-competitive games. And it conceivably makes decks more consistent. And then we have the atrocity that was 2020. We're just going to name some cards off Mad Lib style. Fires of Invention, Teferi Time Raveler, Agent of Treachery, Growth Spiral, Wilderness Reclamation, Cauldron Familiar, Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath, and the Companion Nerf, which was in and and of itself essentially a ban for several companions. Because they just actively aren't good enough when you have to move them to your hand before you play them. Here's looking at you, Gairuda. It's just not a thing people are apparently willing to do. So that brings me to the question, why do cards get banned in standard? And there's, there's several reasons. First is balance. They're too powerful or more frequently, it's not necessarily that they're too powerful. Look at cons format where you could play treasure cruise and dig through time at four copies each and nobody bat an eyelash, but more frequently, instead of it being too powerful, Everything else got powered down too far. Which is to say, when when everything else is weak and this one thing is like even pretty good looking at energy, it's going to be, it's going to feel unfair even if it wasn't designed to be unfair. It can also be Ubiquity, a card that sees play in a lot of similar or even different decks and invalidates other similar cards. This is not the same as the balance issue when I'm talking about decks like the the Simic Food deck or the Teamer Energy, the Energy Card Shells doing what they did. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is a card like Smuggler's Copter, a card like Once Upon a Time, a card that just jumps into anything, and it's just, like, way too good. 
It's the kind of card you have to talk yourself out of playing, even if it means splashing a color for it. That kind of good. Uro was that kind of good. Logistics. Cards that waste time get banned. That's why Sensei's Divining Top is banned in every format that's not Commander that it would otherwise be legal in. And the only reason it's not banned in Commander is we already expect the games to take several hours to play anyway. But that's a good example of why Cauldron Familiar was banned. Is because, you know, you look at Arena, waiting for your opponent to click through their Cauldron Familiar loops. You don't have a shortcut. You just have to wait. That's a pain. And then there's Social Pressure. This one's more recent. Turns out, loud voices on the internet. Uh, for a company who is stepping heavily into an esports space, can be very persuasive. And that brings me to the last part of this, which is the pros and cons of banning cards in Standard. Because there's a delicate balancing act that has to be achieved. The pros of banning in Standard right now, one, Arena is the primary form of Standard format consumption. And the fact that you get wild cards back when they ban cards makes it a little bit less of a feel-bad when you take the plunge on something and then it gets banned. Second, the format at least conceivably becomes better. Hadn't always happened that way. But at least on the surface, surface level descriptions, it gets better. Even if it doesn't get great, it doesn't become the best format ever. If you were under the thumb of something oppressive, banning banning that thing out of existence can open up space, create new enthusiasm, and it can make the format gameplay feel better. Another conceivably, designers know what to avoid in the future. I say conceivably because here we are with Several busted mana engines banned in the last year. Who'd have thunk it? And last but not least, competitive players get to feel like they're experiencing a brand new format. Which is to say, if you're playing at FNM, if you're playing at, you know, playing on the lower the lower end of the ladder on Arena, you're already seeing a bunch of weird, different stuff all the time. But when you're playing up near the top of the ladder, I, I hear from people. It's the, the kind of thing like you keep running into the same matchups over and over and over and over and over again. Because as Magic players, we don't want to play a deck that's not good. And if this thing is the only good deck, why would I play anything else? That's the mentality. So you just keep having to play against it. And an endless series of mirror matches is just actively not fun. The cons of banning in standard. The card that gets banned isn't the only financial blow. A really good example, even in the arena universe. Banning Fires of Invention didn't just ban Fires of Invention. It also banned Cavalier of Flame, Cavalier of Gales, uh, 
Luca, Copper Coat, Outcast. There were there was there were a number of cards that the loss of fires hurt. So if you shelled out a bunch of money to get gems, to open packs, to build up wild cards in order to get into this deck, and the only things you got wild cards back for were fires and agent of treachery. Feels really bad. Really bad. And consumer read buyer confidence takes a boot takes a blow. As a player who is looking to invest in a product, I want to know that I'm going to get to use that product. And it's Obviously a much bigger deal in paper than it is in online circles because in online circles you can either go to different formats, you can you can move the card if you're playing Magic Online, you know, you can get something back out of it. And then budget players are often hit the hardest by this because they just don't have the money to spend on a new one. They just don't like we, we scrimp and save and put everything together to try to make sure we have everything we need to play this deck. We're getting really good with it and it's gone. Well, somebody is being really loud with their music over there. So, but that's, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, remember, check out the parent network, check out the sponsor, patreon.com slash homerpathmtg. If you're interested in becoming a patron, you can find me on Twitter at homerpathmtg on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. And with all of that out of the way, let's look at good grief. All the messages. I turned my Wi-Fi on and it was like an explosion. I think we only had two. Yeah, we only had two. We had uh, first from Drac V Popper uh, TPG. It says White Knight was one of the first Magic cards I ever played. I was instantly hooked. You could almost say it was love at first strike. <laughs> MTG dad jokes. I had an I, I tagged another one from. Uh, Lady of the Crease is uh, Nicole. Says, does this mean Croxa wins the Clash of the Titans? Yes. Yes, yes, it does. And last but not least, we have the glory that was today. So I was tagged in a post by Brian Sharp, frequent entrant into MTG Dad Jokes, who said, everyone says that green is broken in standard, but it felt great to have Scoot Swarm Scoop on turn four. On the play, I turned three Clover, Opponent, turn three, Scoot Swarm, land, make a token. My turn, um, murder, uh, swift end to Scoot and the token. Opponent, good game emotes and snap concedes. Said it was almost as good as the snap concede to me flashing in Black Lance Paragon to deal with a mutating Starix. 
said instant speed removal at three CMC or less may be the best answer to Cobra and Omna. I wholeheartedly agree, but you know, I had to do the thing. I said, you could say those games were over in an instant. Yeah. Q CSI Miami opening credits to which Brian replied. My opponents were just a flash in the pan. <laughs> so that's all I have for you this week, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember like comment, subscribe and tell people if you haven't already. So with that, I will remind you, early voting has opened up in a lot of places around the country. Absentee voting is still available. Do not miss your opportunity to vote and do not let anyone deny you your right to do so. And that is all I will say about that. And I will catch you next week. Be safe, everybody.